Well, if you have your Bible, then I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. We are returning to our series as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And so I'm going to begin from Acts chapter 19, verse 23. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he has said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, it's been several Sundays since we were in the book of Acts. Let me just kind of remind you of the context of Acts chapter 19, and that, and that the focus of Acts chapter 19 is on the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. And we have encountered in, the, in this chapter where Paul ministered to these folks called, known as the disciples of John the Baptist. And after Paul ministered to them, showed them the gospel, they, re, they rebaptized in the name of Jesus. We, all, we have also learned about Paul teaching in the hall of this place called Tyrannus, 
We have also witnessed the interesting events with the Jewish exorcist, demon possession, uh, and some of the Ephesians burning their books on ma- magic arts. And all in all, Paul, Paul could have been in the city of Ephesus for almost three years if we take all the events in this passage into consideration. And this makes Ephesus the longest city that Paul spent in spreading the gospel and training believers to be mature in Christ. And as we have learned in Acts, whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, whenever sinners are being saved by God and come to know Jesus, there are pushbacks, there are persecutions from the enemy. And persecution is stemmed from different forms. We recall in Jerusalem, earlier in Acts, in Jerusalem, persecution came from the Jewish religious leaders and organized religion. And also in Acts, in Jerusalem, King Herod persecuted believers to feed his ego, his pride, and his reputation before the Jews. And then in Antioch, at the end of Acts 13, persecution stemmed from jealousy and prejudice. In Lystra, ignorant paganism caused the persecution. And then even in Philippi, in Acts 16, persecution came as a reaction against the victory over demonic spirits. In Thessalonica, unruly mob wanted to kill Paul. In Corinth, the Jews persecuted and accused Paul before the Roman court. However, the irony is that Despite persecution, despite the persecution that occurred, the gospel continued to advance and the church continued to grow. One of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian life is that the church thrives under persecution. And that's because Jesus promised in Matthew 16 that he will build his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And that when Christianity spreads in the nation, it should affect different aspects of life, such as culture, industry, economy, and morality. And here, in the story that we just read, the persecution and violence against the Apostle Paul is a rather extensive story in Acts. This section is a purely historical narrative with little discourse, little explicit application for Christians. You see, in this passage, we don't see Paul talking here. We don't see him speaking in this text. We only see him briefly in verse 30. You only have the pagans speaking, like Demetrius and the town clerk. And furthermore, there are about seven different characters that are played in this unfolding drama. And so in Ephesus, this heavy persecution was caused by materialism and even so-called piety to the temple idol. Now, why did Luke write such a large portion of this narrative in Acts? Why did he do that? But more importantly, what exactly is God doing in this passage? You see, in this passage, I want to offer you three general headings. And at the end of the message, I'll offer three more truths 
we can learn about God. The first we want to learn is that in verses 23 to 27, we will learn about the powerlessness of Artemis. The powerlessness of Artemis. You see in verse 23 here, while Paul was still in Ephesus, something happened. There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Something is stirring up. There's something, there's a serious trouble that's going to happen in regards to the Christian movement, which was known as the way. That was the early expression of Christianity. Now, why is there trouble? It's because of a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. He owned a business by making silver shrines of Artemis, little idols. And these shrines were like the little temples of Artemis that were sold as souvenirs and, and amulets. And in fact, in verse 25, as Demetrius was talking to other workmen who may also have been silversmiths, he demonstrates that they were able to make a lot of money by crafting shrines for Artemis. He says to them, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. See, for them, their business is selling idolatrous shrines. And that was their business. That was their source of income and their wealth. That was their livelihood. And if that's taken away, then they're in trouble. But now we know they're in trouble because he's not making a lot of money. And what seems to be the problem? Well, Demetrius here gives the workmen a three-part speech. See, when you read this, he's appealing to their emotions and their sensitivity. See, first, he blames their economic loss on the Apostle Paul in verse 26. See, Paul has been persuading many people in Ephesus and in the province of Asia. If you don't know where Ephesus is, if you don't know where Asia is, it's actually located in modern-day Turkey, the, the west side. See, Paul has been persuading many people to turn away from worshiping idols because Paul apparently said gods made with hands are not gods. And what well, is not false at all, he was speaking the truth. These idols are no gods at all. Paul may have said something similar back in Acts chapter 17, verse 29, when he said to the Greek philosophers, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the, the art and the imagination of man. You see, Paul persuaded people to worship the one true God, which is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He's the one who is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who is not bound in the temple. He's the one who is not made out of gold, not made out of silver. And so after God caused the Ephesians to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened to these believers? They gave up their idol, idol worship. They stopped purchasing idols. They stopped purchasing silver shrines. And they started worshiping Jesus. And as more and more people became believers, you can imagine how Christianity, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, can affect and can even do damage to the idol-making industry and economy. And this situation is quite similar to Acts chapter 16, verse 16. There was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. 
She was bringing her owner's financial gain by fortune telling. And when Paul, when Paul casts out a demon out of the slave girl with the spirit of divination, it says that the owner saw that their hope of gain was lost. And so subsequently they persecuted Paul for that. See, when Christians turn away from idols, idol makers lose their business. And that is the implication of the transforming power of the gospel. It was William Barclay who once said this about this passage in, regarding, the, regarding the idol makers here. He said this, and I quote, Christianity was making such strides that their trade was threatened. Christianity was making such strides that their trade was threatened. Here is a clear case of what happened and still happens when Christianity comes up against a vested interest, end quote. Now, just imagine something with me for a bit. Just imagine. Just imagine if everyone in the world right now became born-again Christians before Christ returns. How would that affect our, the, the world economy? I would say many businesses, many industries will be bankrupt to the ground, and rightly so. There'll be no more porn industries and adult entertainment. Sex and human trafficking and exploitation will be gone. Abortion clinics will close down. All religious icons from all religions will be dismantled and knocked down. And there may be more that I can list, but I hope that you get the point. The second thing that Demetrius said to the workmen is found in verse 27. He seems to be concerned not only about his economic loss, but also concerned that Artemis would not be worshipped. So he appeals to their religious devotion. Now, I don't know if Demetrius was sincere in his devotion towards Artemis. What is clear is that he cared about his bank account. But either way, he says to them, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis, great goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing. Now, some of your translation may say Diana, same, but it's the same goddess. And this temple of Artemis was actually one of the world wonders of the ancient world. That's just a cultural context for you. It was one of the world wonders in the ancient world. Many people would tour and visit Ephesus just for Artemis. Scholars commented that the temple of Artemis at Ephesus was the first to be entirely built out of marble. Here, hence, it might be related to the sacred stone that fell from the sky that the town clerk was alluding to later on in the passage. And also, it's one of the largest Greek temples ever built. It's slightly larger than a football field. And furthermore, the temple was the center of much superstitious religion, such as the magic art that we've learned last time, and also cult prostitution. And since Christianity was spreading in the city of Ephesus, Demetrius was concerned that Artemis would lose her influence and importance. And furthermore, he thinks that Christianity was challenging the majesty and the magnificence of Artemis. Is it Jesus versus, it is Jesus versus Artemis? And in the Ephesian culture, there's a lot of loyalty, devotion, and faithfulness towards Artemis. 
And the last thing that Demetrius said to the workmen was found in the latter part of verse 27. And here he appeals to their future livelihood in Ephesus. He says to the worker, she, that is Artemis, may even be deposed from her magnificence. Now, there are two words I want us to observe here. The word be deposed means to be taken down. It carries a sense of being removed from an office of high status. So in this sense, Artemis will be removed from her magnificence. And even the word magnificence, that's not a word I want to observe, means majesty or grandeur. And what is fascinating about this word is that it speaks of greatness and glory. And whenever this word is used, it is usually attributed to God. It talks about the majesty of God in Luke 9.43. It talks about the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.16. Here, the pagan worship Artemis as their great majesty. Now, we know that's blasphemous. That's blasphemy. We know that majesty and glory are reserved for God alone. But how? How did Artemis get her majesty and her magnificence? See, all Asia and the world, and now the word world here is not talking about the entire world, talking about the Roman world during that time. See, all Asia and the Roman world worshipped her. The temple of Artemis was a famous idol in the Roman world. Many rulers would bring their gifts to her. However, if she is stripped from her throne and her reputation, it would cause Ephesus to be less interesting and less of a world wonder thus lowering the pride of the citizens and cripple the economy of the city. You see, many cities around the world, even till now, around the world, rely heavily on tourism as a significant source of their economic revenue. However, we know that the pandemic had, has had a significant impact on the tourism industry, causing many cities to suffer from a decline in tourism and economic activity. So in a similar way, Ephesus relied on, relied on Artemis and idolatry as a source of income. Now, the Ephesians may not have cared too much if Demetrius and other workmen were losing their business. However, if the, however, the Ephesians cared a lot if Artemis was not hailed and exalted by the people. Artemis was deeply ingrained in their pagan culture. Ephesus took great pride in the, in the temple. And if Artemis were to be discredited, it would have been an enormous insult to the city and to its economic detriments. This ironically demonstrates really the, the powerlessness of Artemis. She, she cannot defend herself when she's in danger. And so her ignorant people need to defend her honor. And so they're provoked to anger that will eventually lead towards a riot. So we learn the powerlessness of Artemis. Now in verses 28 to 34, we will learn about the perplexity of the riot. The perplexity of the riot. See, after the speech was given by Demetrius, the workmen and the craftsmen reacted in two ways. They were enraged meaning they had an intense wrath. And thus, in their anger and even in their unison, they were crying out and chanting, 
presumably in a very loud voice, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians." That's what happens in riots. They chant. They wanted to protect the honor of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. They do so by persecuting and attacking those who oppose her. And so, what you'll see is a really a typical riot that we may have seen on some occasions in the states during the past several years. Now, I'm not sure to what level you can compare this riot in Ephesus with the ones in the in America, but we know that Artemis, the workmen and the craftsmen, were enraged, and so they threw the city of Ephesus into confusion, perplexity. By rioting, it was unruly. It was a mob mentality. There is chaos and disorder, and so they rushed together into the、uh, amphitheater, the amphitheater that you can still visit now. If you, when you when, when you go to Ephesus, it was, it's now ruined, but it's still there. It's actually a giant public space that can seat up to around maybe twenty five thousand people, and so you can imagine that this was the largest crowd that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. And so, as they were going into the theater, they were dragging and seizing by force with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Now, why they dragged these two men is certainly odd, but the crowd recognized them as Paul's companions. They were Macedonians, which meant that they were from Greece.、Uh, they may have become followers of Jesus Christ from Paul's ministry in Philippi and in Thessalon- Thessalonica. And seeing that his companions were seized, notice in verse forty, in verse thirty, that Paul wished to go in among the crowd. See, Paul had the boldness and the courage to go to the crowd to save his companions. See, what's the worst that could happen? He already experienced much persecution already in his life, in his ministry. He even endangered his life for the sake of the gospel. So the worst thing that could happen is that he may die, and then gain Christ in heaven. However, we notice here that while he may not have counted his life as a value, his friends and his disciples did not want him to be reckless in this situation. They were trying to protect Paul, and not only were the disciples for preventing him. But we notice in verse 31 that even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, who are these people? Who are these people? These、uh, Asiarchs were the high-ranking officers of the province of Asia. High-ranking officers of the province of Asia. Luke only indicated that they were Paul's friends, but we don't know if they were believers. But Luke mentions the Asiarchs for a reason. Paul's ministry in Ephesus affected not just the common and normal citizens of the society in Ephesus, but it affected also every tier of society, including the higher officials. The gospel is not just for. An average Joe is for everybody, even the elitist, for every single person. And here we have the higher authority defending the Apostle Paul from the riot caused by Demetrius, because he had no grounds to cause a riot and disorder in the society. And furthermore, they defended the Apostle Paul as friends because they did not regard him. 
as a dangerous man or as someone who was lawless. And it's interesting that not even the Roman authority have come to the point of persecuting the Christians here. It's a similar situation back in Acts 18, whereby Gallio, a proconsul, defended the apostle Paul from the attacks and accusations of the Jews. And so since Luke purposefully brings up the Asiarchs as defenders of the Christian cause, it really communicates one of Luke's purposes of writing the book of Acts to this man named Theophilus. You remember back in Acts chapter 1, Paul wrote this book to Theophilus. And if you remember the time when I started this series in Acts, that's actually almost two years ago, I mentioned that Theophilus may have been someone who had held a high status in society, such as a Roman official. Luke may have wanted to show Theophilus through writing that the early Christians were not troublemakers, but outstanding citizens in the Greco-Roman world. And Luke had positive things to say about this, uh, this Gentile government and the way they treated the Christians because they didn't see Christians doing anything wrong here. Now, returning to verse 32, the nature of this riot was nothing but confusion and perplexity. There was chaos and disorder. We see some cry one thing, some another, thus causing uh, confusion in the assembly because most of them did not know what's going on, what's happening, and why are we gathering here together? And then another group of the crowd seems like a Jewish group. They, pr- they prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Now, the identity of this Alexander is rather obscure. We don't know if it's the same Alexander who did harm to Paul in 2 Timothy. Uh, he could have just been a one-off character in the book of Acts. But, but Luke also doesn't mention if he was a Christian. So why did the crowd put Alexander forward? It's possible that the rioters were blaming the Jews for wanting to ruin the reputation of Artemis. And that's because the Jews... As you know, in Judaism, they were not allowed to worship idols or temple idols, just like the Christians. And so they put Alexander forward as a spokesman for the Jews. Perhaps the intention is to disassociate themselves from the Christians. However, in verse 34, they recognized that Alexander was a Jew, so they don't even want to hear his defense. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And so they reacted by crying out and chanting the same thing. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I could do this for two hours if you want me to. But this was certainly an emotional uh, moment. Uh, The crowd was rowdy. There's a lot of energy. They were passionate. However, an unexpected character comes into the scene known as the town clerk. And we learn about the powerlessness of Artemis. We learn about the perplexity of the crowd. And the third heading is we learn about the plausibility of the Roman official. The plausibility of the Roman official. He's a town clerk. Now, who is this town clerk? We don't know his name, though. Um, but he could be viewed as the mayor of the city of Ephesus. He could be like a powerful city manager. He has the highest civic official, he's the highest civic official in the city. He serves as the city's liaison 
to Roman authorities. So in this section, we notice that he's very reasonable, he's very plausible, he's very clear-minded. And so he addresses the crowd and he confronts the unreasonableness of 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 the riot. His address can be split into two parts. First, Artemis is not at risk of losing her reputation. And second, the rioters should settle this issue legally. So first, he argues that Artemis is not at risk of losing her reputation and power. See, notice what he says here in in verse 35. He asks a rhetorical question. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Who doesn't know all these things? In other words, he's trying to tell them the whole entire Roman Empire know about Artemis and her magnificence and her reputation. She's not going anywhere. And so he's telling the crowd, why are you overreacting? Why are you so worked up? And so in verse 36, the town court tells them that they ought to be quiet. Restrain yourselves. Don't do anything rash. Don't be reckless. Don't be thoughtless. Why? Well, verse 37 gives us a reason. It's because these men, these uh, men, Gaius and Aristarchus, whom they brought into the theater, they were neither blasphemers, they were not sacrilegious. Now, the word sacrilegious could also be translated as temple robbers. See, back in those days, it was a, it was a capital crime for someone to desecrate and to plunder the temple. That's what it means to be sacrilegious. But Gaius and Aristarchus did none of those things. They were outstanding citizens. Neither were they blasphemers. They did not use insulting language against Artemis. And second, the rioters here should settle this issue rather uh, legally rather than rioting for no reason because it can be a risk of breaking the Roman law we can infer that the town clerk wanted law and order, as we may have here heard in our society. We want law and order in society. And so in verses 38 to 40, the clerk gave them two legal options to bring their charges against the Apostle Paul instead of using mob mentality and sparking a riot. And unfortunately, many people these days, especially as we may have seen in the States, people like to riot, protest, Hopefully they do do it peacefully, but sometimes it ends up with rioting. Sometimes people don't want law and order. They just want things their own way. And so they bring the, so here, here in this passage, they, they can bring their charges at the, at the court since they're proconsuls who are the Roman rulers under the control of the Roman Senate. And if they cannot settle the issue in courts, then they can settle the matter in the regular assembly or the legal assembly in verse 39. And so why was the clerk so concerned about law and order? It's because in verse verse 40, in verse 40, he was deeply concerned that they were in danger of being charged with rioting today. You see, there was no cause and reason that they can give to justify this commotion. You see, in Roman society, in that culture, they valued law and order. They hated chaos. They hated disorder. And if there's chaos in the city, there's a risk that the Roman government might step in 
might be forced to step in and bring their military to solve the issue, to solve the situation, and thus perhaps leading to violence and even unnecessary death. And furthermore, the emperor, the Roman emperor, could also strip and limit uh, Ephesus' privilege of, and rights of being a free city, a self-governing city. And so what we see is that even a governing official was reasonable and plausible in the way he treated the Apostle Paul and the Christians in Ephesus. And so the passage here concludes with the clerk dismissing the assembly after he confronts them with of rioting without reason. Just go home. There's no point. And so they did. They understood. And so they stopped rioting. Now, I want you to notice another irony in this story. I want you to notice this word danger in verses 27 and also 40. The word danger. Demetrius, in verse 27, was concerned that if more people became Christians, there is a risk or danger that Demetrius' business and also Artemis will, become in, will come into disrepute, will lose their reputation. So he thinks that the Christian movement was dangerous. The clerk, however, they do not see the Christians as a threat. They don't see the Christians as dangerous. Instead, the narratives flipped around. He saw Demetrius and the rioters as dangerous people. Isn't that interesting? What an irony. As a Roman pagan, he was defending the Christians because they did not act improperly. But there's also another irony in the story that you need to notice. What I love about this Bible sometimes is that when I study it, there's always so much irony you can discover. You see, the clerk thinks that Artemis wasn't going anywhere. People in the Roman world will continue to know Artemis and worship her. He thinks that these Christians and their gospel message will have no effect on a great goddess. Sadly, he's mistaken and ignorant. Think about this. Who in the world right now still worships Artemis? Perhaps almost none. And even if you go to Ephesus right now, it's a ruin. Artemis is no more. She's gone. Whereas there are millions and billions right now, even in the history of of Christianity, who worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is a name above all names. He is the magnificent one, the only magnificent one who is to be worshipped because he's the one who came down to the world to save sinners by dying on the cross and being raised on the third day so that whoever believes in him, repent of their sins, will have eternal life. Only Jesus can save you. Artemis cannot save you. Your idols don't save you. Nothing in this world can save you. Only Jesus can save you from your sins. And so as I slowly wrap up, we have learned about the powerlessness of Artemis. You can say the powerlessness powerlessness of any idols. We learn about the perplexity of the riot and the plausibility of the Roman official. But what can we learn about God from this passage? What can we take away personally as a practical practical, uh, application? 
I think Luke used this rather long story to communicate something about God without really trying to communicate it directly. Why? It's because we have the entire book of Acts to fill in the details for us. Because the theme of persecution comes up again and again. But we know that God is at work, right? We know that God is in control of every situation. And so there are three truths we can learn about God. And that is the power of God in contrast to the powerlessness of Artemis. We learn about the protection of God for his people in the midst of of a confusing riot. We learn about the providence of God in utilizing everything in his sovereign disposal for the sake of advancing his gospel to the ends of the world. He even uses kings and rulers to do his will. Just like Proverbs, he controls the hearts of the rulers. See, God in his providence used a pagan leader to defend his people. God was protecting and advancing the gospel, even by using the rules and reasonings of the pagans. God protects and advances the gospel using all means at his disposal because God is the only powerful God. And knowing that's who God is, what one principle could we apply from this text? See, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, speaks of this manner of being a good witness as a Christian. Even if we were to suffer for our good behavior and in telling others about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, God never promises that He will always protect us from dangers, but He did promise that He will be with us, even in the midst of those things. It is possible that Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus could have been hurt in the theater. But even if they would suffer physically by the rioters, they would continue to bear witness for Christ. See, I'm going to conclude with, this, with Peter's words here. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Just like Demetrius and the rioters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you will always fulfill your sovereign plan here in this world in advancing the gospel. Jesus, you promised that we will receive power of the Holy Spirit and that we will be witnesses to the ends of the world. Help us to be found faithful in proclaiming your message, to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, to help them to help them to understand the seriousness and the urgency of believing in Christ because we don't know when. We don't know when you will come back. And only that, we also don't know when we will pass from this world. So there is that sense of urgency. But Lord, we also recognize the futility of idol worship because there are nothing 
And Lord, if there's any of us who have, abhor- who have held on to idols, it may not be physical idols, but it can be money, it can be reputation, it can be pride, it can be anything that tries to satisfy us besides you. Lord, may we repent, turn away from them, even destroy them if, if, if all means possible. so that we can live a life wholly devoted to you and loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray that you would be also, in light of this passage, we pray that you would be with our government. Pray for our kings, that you would please give them much-needed wisdom and knowledge, O oh Lord, how they, much, how they need it. May they do what is right. And even as Christians, Lord, we're living in a godless society where time and time again we see how the governments sometimes do things that, and pass laws that are against your will. So I pray for them. We pray for them that you would save them, have mercy upon them, and that you would help them bring Christians into that political arena so that they can know the gospel and hear the gospel and to repent of their sins, to believe in the Lord and to, do, and to govern your way in your, according to your will. So we, ha- so we lift them up to you as well. And so Lord, help us now as, as we go about this week. Help us to be your witnesses wherever we go. Help us to be faithful in declaring your truth, and help us to live it out as well. Help us to live out the gospel before the world, before those who don't know Christ, so that they can see the light that is in us, which is the light of Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.